Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're beginning a series of episodes chronicling the rule of one of the most famous medieval kings of all time, Charles of Francia, aka Carl de Grosse, aka Charlemagne. In this episode, we'll talk about the beginnings of Charlemagne's life and how he eventually became powerful enough to assert himself as an emperor for Christendom. We'll eventually get into the legacy Charlemagne would leave behind, which may actually be more important than the man's own life. Charlemagne's life would pave the way for Western Europe to get its act together after the fall of the Western Roman Empire a few centuries before his own birth. His story is basically the preview of the next half millennium or so of Europe in regards to nation-building, Christianity, and its relationship with the Muslim world. The reign of Charlemagne also sees the rise of what would become the stereotypical image of the Middle Ages. Knights would officially become a thing, men in metal armor on horseback fighting for honor and glory, castles, wars... There's a reason I'm devoting a few episodes of this podcast to his rule. There's a lot of ground to cover. Like, he held three different royal titles, King of the Franks, King of the Lombards, and Holy Roman Emperor. So yeah, obviously we can't just make this a one-off. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Western Europe in the 8th century in Father of Europe, Part 1, Charles of Francia. For the background history lesson in this episode, we're going to take a couple big swings. First, what happened to Europe after the fall of Rome? Some of that would require a knowledge of what the actual fall of Rome was, which is actually very complicated. When did Rome actually fall? Traditionally, it is stated as being in September of 476 CE. This is when the last Roman emperor, some heavy air quotes there just in case, was forced to abdicate the throne in favor of appeasing the Germanic tribes that had invaded Italy. The Roman Senate, which despite everything seeming to have pointed to the contrary still existed, then sent the imperial insignia, which were a bunch of items that were always paraded around by the emperor, to Constantinople where they would be in the hands of the Byzantine Empire. This officially transferred the power of the Roman Empire from the west to the east. Not everyone was happy with this, but there were many other things to be unhappy about, so it was allowed to settle in the background for a while. Thus we enter the Dark Ages. Except not really. For decades now, historians have been trying to dispose of the idea that the medieval era was this horrible landscape where everyone was desperate for the return of Rome. This was actually a myth perpetuated during the Renaissance. Also, just for some added trivia, the term medieval derives from the Latin phrase medium avum, which literally translates to middle age. There wasn't really any clamor to return to the might of Rome because Rome had kinda sucked for ages at this point. Like I said, the fall of Rome was complicated. It had essentially been falling ever since the death of Augustus in 14 CE. There had been awful emperors, civil wars, people like Attila the Hun, and invasions of Germanic tribes ever since the empire was founded. But now there was no true Western Roman Empire anymore. So what happened to the rest of Europe that had been a part of the empire? 
Well, instead of the emperor and provincial governors, power was ceded into the hands of wealthy warlords. This allowed for more freedom in the individual provinces. Local variations of Latin started transforming into brand new languages like Spanish, French, and Italian. But there were also pretty decent culture shifts due to the Germanic tribes that had migrated into southern and western Europe, and even into northern Africa. This left a power vacuum within the realm of who was the actual leader of Europe. Well, after some help from the Byzantines, though help is wording it rather nicely because it was a slew of conquering, losing, and then reconquering Rome, power was essentially given to the church under the rule of the Pope. After all, even the Germanic people in Western Europe had converted to Christianity. You can't be too scared of your Visigoth neighbor when he's in church speaking a version of Latin instead of his Germanic tongue. That brings us to talking more about the Germanic people in Western Europe. Several major tribes ended up taking over different places. You had the Visigoths in the Iberian Peninsula and southern France, the Lombards in Italy, the Angles and Saxons in Britain, and the Franks in northern parts of Gaul, aka modern-day France. So who were the Franks? They were first described by the Romans in the 3rd century CE as a group of tribes living around the Lower Rhine area of Germania. The term then kind of evolved to mean any Romanized group of Germans. And while several Frankish kingdoms existed throughout this period of post-Roman power, the main powerhouse of the people was the Merovingian dynasty. The Merovingians had been somewhat influential under Roman rule, but gained considerable power after conquering the other Germanic tribes in the area until they eventually ruled over all of what is now modern-day France and Belgium. However, their power began to fade over time. After the death of Frankish King Dagobert in 639, the leaders of Francia, the term given to the Kingdom of the Franks, became known as the Do-Nothing Kings. It eventually got to the point where the Merovingian kings were mere figureheads while a position called Mayor of the Palace actually held all the power. In 737, King Theodric died, leaving power of Francia in the hands of his Mayor of the Palace, Charles Martel. Martel would reign as leader of the Franks, though not as their king. He would go on to lead many victories for the Franks against the Moors, a term that applied to the Muslim population of the Iberian Peninsula, Sicily, and northwest Africa. The Moors were actually part of the Umayyad Caliphate, the largest Muslim nation to ever exist. It stretched from Spain all the way across Africa into southern Asia. Charles ruled for four years before power was restored to the Merovingian kings. But power would not remain with the dynasty for much longer. The bloodline of Charles Martel would soon return in full force. Charles Martel's two sons, Carloman and Pepin, the latter being Charlemagne's father, succeeded him as the mayors of the palace. In order to prevent dissent among the other Frankish nobility, in 743, Carloman and Pepin decided to get a new king in charge, Childeric III. As before, Childeric had no real power, and the sons of Charles Martel were the actual leaders of Francia. Well, three years later, Carloman suddenly announced that he would be stepping down as mayor of the palace in order to become a monk. Most sources say that this choice was made of Carloman's own volition. However, others suggest that Pepin coordinated an effort with Pope Zachary in order to force his brother out of power. 
Carloman was known for being a pretty ruthless political figure, so maybe Pepin desired a more peaceful existence. Or, you know, medieval rulers love a good power grab. With Carloman out of the way, Pepin was now the sole mayor of the palace. It's here where those rumors of Pepin and Pope Zachary working together gain a bit more credence. Due to an openly coordinated plan, Pepin convinced the Pope to force Childeric to step down as King of the Franks. Now, Pepin was in a similar position to his father, Charles. However, Pepin was willing to do what Charles had not. He wrote a letter to the Pope explaining that it was wild that the sole ruler of a nation, let's just say a king, shouldn't have any actual royal power. Pope Zachary agreed with his assessment. In 749, the Pope decreed that Pepin should be crowned as the next King of the Franks. The next year, an assembly of the Frankish people formally elected Pepin as the new king. Thus began the Carolingian dynasty, named for Charles Martel. Also, because there's no other great place to put this fun fact, Pepin is usually known as Pepin the Short. There's no historical records about Pepin's height, some people think that maybe it's an archaic form of short that also means humble. Other sources suggest that there was a Frankish ruler named Pepin who was actually short, but since we don't know which one it was, Charlemagne's father just got stuck with the title. Also, this nickname wasn't given to King Pepin until a few centuries after his death, so that's why there's so much mystery behind the meaning of short. Pepin is most well known for creating a strong alliance between the church and the Franks. As Pope Zachary had made him king, it only made sense that this relationship would continue. Pepin would go on to lead military campaigns against the Lombards in Italy in order to free Rome and the church from their control. After conquering a bit of central Italy, Pepin handed over the chunk of land to the Pope, creating the Papal States, essentially a nation with the Pope acting as its monarch. There was a whole mess about who should succeed Pepin as the mayor slash mayors of the palace. After a lengthy bout of family infighting, the position was split between Pepin's sons, Carloman and Charles, this Charles being Charlemagne. So now that Charlemagne is in the story, let's talk about his early life. His birth. What year and when? No one knows. Yeah, that's great. General guesses place it somewhere around 747 based on other details about his life and his biographers, but we don't know for sure. Also, he was possibly born in the city of Aachen, which back then was part of Francia, but is in current-day Germany. In 768, King Pepin died in Paris. According to his will, the nation would be divided in two so both of his sons could be king. Carloman would get the eastern provinces of Francia and Charles would get the west. Though he was far from being known as Charlemagne, Charles is now one of the kings of the Franks. However, he shares that honor with his brother, and these two didn't really get along. Also, the region of Aquitaine in southern Francia was in open rebellion against the new leaders of the nation. Ain't that a great way to start your kingship? The year before Pepin died, he had just finished waging a decade-long war against the Duke of Aquitaine. Unsurprisingly, the people within the region were unhappy with the Carolingians. Also, with the strange way that Francia had been split in half for Charles and Carloman to rule, Aquitaine was split between the two brother kings. 
So when Aquitaine decided to rebel against the new kings, Charles realized that this was something the two brothers could do together. You know, good family bonding in order to assert their powers as kings of Francia. Yeah, except that Carloman wasn't really all that keen on fighting alongside his brother. It's said that the armies of the two kings met in the town of Moncontour near Poitiers, where the two brothers proceeded to get into an argument with each other. Over what? History doesn't really say. There are suggestions that Carloman was not ready or really even willing to wage a war against the people of Aquitaine. Even though not much is known about the childhood of Charles, it's assumed that he grew up with strict military training. He was possibly also a bit impulsive when it came to war. Meanwhile, Carloman was seen as the more conservative of the two brothers. He was possibly even hoping that Charles's war against the Aquitaines would fail, ruining his older brother's political career. Well, that last part, if true, backfired spectacularly. Charles forced the Duke of Aquitaine to flee south into the neighboring Duchy of Gascony, where the Duke sought the aid of Duke Lupus II. Lupus realized that it was probably better to throw his support in with the stronger army and turned over the Duke of Aquitaine to Charles. Charles had the Duke of Aquitaine stripped of his titles and forced into a monastery to become a monk. In order to fully seal his victory, Charles then fully brought Aquitaine and Gascony under control of the Frankish crown. The older son of Pepin found his political power growing with this grand victory under his belt. Carloman, however, was in the exact opposite spot. The people of Francia were upset that one of their kings had not sought to fight for their nation, and his position would only get worse with time. Seeking to form an alliance with Francia's eastern Germanic neighbors, in 770, Charles married the daughter of King Desiderius of the Lombards in northern Italy. This marriage was sealed with an agreement between Charles and the Duke of Bavaria. Also, history has not properly recorded the name of Charlemagne's first wife. For the most part, she's referred to as Desiderata, but this was most likely not her real name. The marriage also needed approval by the Pope. Pope Stephen III was originally hesitant to approve of the union. After all, the Franks and Lombards allied together could create a very powerful unified army. He then decided that maybe that wouldn't be a problem, which was surprisingly true at the end of the day. Now, Carloman was put in a position where he had pressure to the west with Charles and pressure to the east with Charles's in-laws and allies. Carloman's bad luck was briefly alleviated when Charles and Desiderata suddenly split less than a year after being married. Charles, then around 30, give or take a few years, decided to marry his second wife, Hildegard, and she was 13 years old. Offended by this chain of events, Desiderata fled to the court of Carloman before returning to her father in the city of Pavia in Italy. King Desiderius was furious that his ally had repudiated his daughter. The Lombards were no longer allies of the Franks. At least the Franks led by Charles. Carloman seized this opportunity to attempt to form a relationship between his kingship and the Lombards. A civil war in Francia was sure to erupt at any moment. However, before anything could happen in terms of war, Carloman suddenly died in 771. Civil war averted, just like that. Charles was now the sole ruler of the Franks. But just like when he first became king, this new chapter of his reign would once again begin with war. 
this time against the Lombards. The Lombards and the Papal States had been in a bit of a rocky situation since... well, since the formation of the Papal States. I mean, Charles's father had created them after conquering the Lombard Kingdom. But now there was an even greater tension felt across northern and central Italy. The Carolingians were allies of the Vatican, and Charles had just spurned basically all of Lombardy, especially Desiderius. The king of the Lombards set out to push into the Papal States, seeking to reclaim land that had once belonged to his people. In 772, Pope Adrian sent emissaries to Charles asking for the Franks' support against the Lombards. Weirdly enough, Desiderius sent his own people to Charles insisting that he was doing nothing wrong. It was really a no-brainer for the Frankish king. His nation had a sacred alliance with the Vatican and Charles himself was a devout Christian who had sworn himself to protect the interests of the church. However, there was also something else kinda weird going on where Charles was actually at war with his neighbors to the northeast, the Saxons. We'll get to that in a moment, but we're sticking with Italy for now. Figuring that he might as well just fight two wars at once, why not? Charles left some of his troops in Saxony and marched into Italy in 773. His forces managed to force the Lombards to retreat to their capital city of Pavia. Charles and his armies laid siege to the city where they would hold for about a year. Charles had to very briefly leave the siege because his former brother-in-law, a man named Adelchis, was attempting to raise an army outside of Pavia that could take on the might of the Franks. Well, Charles quickly saw that he was no longer a problem by chasing Adelchis to the Adriatic Sea. Adelchis then fled across the Mediterranean to Constantinople where he hoped to secure an alliance with the Byzantine Empire against the Franks and the Vatican's. This was kinda ironic due to the fact that the Byzantines had once held land in Italy, the Exarchate of Ravenna, that the Lombards had conquered. Well, no alliance was ever formed, at least no alliance that would influence the outcome of this war between the Franks and Lombards. In spring of 774, Charles entered Rome and once more agreed to the terms set out between his father and the Vatican. He was also given the title of Patrician. This title was once used for the ruling class of Rome during the Roman Republic. It had since greatly diminished in significance over the centuries to the point where it basically just meant, hey, you're a cool ruler and a friend of Rome. With this semi-useless new title in hand, Charles marched back to Pavia where the Lombards were beginning to think that maybe they should just surrender. In summer of that year, the gates of Pavia were finally opened for the Franks as Desiderius and his troops surrendered to Charles. Charles officially annexed the Lombard nation as part of his kingdom, with the exception of the Duchy of Benevento in southern Italy that refused to kneel to Charles's rule. Spoiler alert, he'd get that a little over a decade later. Desiderius was forced into a monastery, leaving the Lombards without a king. Well, that's not entirely true. They had a new king in Charles. On the 10th of July 774, Charles was crowned as the King of the Lombards. The crown used in his coronation is known as the Iron Crown. It was said to have been forged using one of the nails from the cross that had been used to crucify Jesus. This crown would later be used to coronate many future rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. So now that he had conquered lands to the south, let's see how Charles was dealing with his northern neighbors. 
The Franks and the Saxons had historically had a relatively peaceful relationship. Also, even though some tribes of the Saxons had transplanted to Britain, their homeland Saxony was still in the western part of modern-day Germany. The Franks needed to travel through Saxony on their way to trading with people in modern-day Denmark. This all changed in early 772 when a group of Saxon raiders burned down a church in the city of Deventer, which was part of Charles's territory. Charles responded in turn by invading Saxony in an attempt to bring the territory under his control. His first major strike in the Saxon Wars was the destruction of an Irminsul near the Saxon castle Eresburg. An Irminsul is a pillar-like shrine, the word literally means great pillar, that was an important aspect of Saxon paganism. This particular Irminsul was said to be a large tree trunk that may have held a similar symbolic meaning to the Saxons as the world tree Yggdrasil did to the Norse. Obviously, this really kicked things off. The reasons behind Charles' invasion of Saxony are vague. Like I said, the Saxons and Franks were on pretty good footing. While the burning of a church isn't great, it really doesn't demand a full-scale invasion as the punishment. The most common held belief is that Charles kind of always wanted to bring Saxony down. He was a Christian king who was buddies with the Vatican. He had no time for Germanic pagans. So now he finally had the slightest bit of a reason to get what he wanted. So Charles continued his path of war further east as he captured towns and hostages alike. It was around this time when things were beginning to heat up in Italy. Charles signed a couple of temporary peace negotiations with Saxon leaders before heading south. One kingdom toppled later and Charles now had the ability to turn his thoughts back to the Saxons, now with that swanky new King of the Lombards title. A few years later, the Saxons finally managed to gather together under the might of one of their kings, Vitikind. Vitikind managed to free some of the Saxon hostages and led several rebellions against Charles's army. Despite this attempt to fight back, the Saxons were powerless against the Knights of Francia. So, in 777, Vitikind entered into negotiations with the King of Denmark to allow Saxon refugees to flee to safety into his kingdom. The Danish king allowed this, but it was little help overall. Even though the Saxon wars were far from over, and in fact would last for about another 25 years, it was clear that the Franks were overpowering the Saxon armies. Vitukun retreated into the safety of Denmark. Charles then began the process of incorporating Saxony into his territories. The process called for the baptism of anyone who was willing, and almost definitely those unwilling, to allow Christianity into their lives. By 780, Charles had baptized a large amount of the population and had also conquered most of Saxony. For two years, the region was mostly at peace. Then, in 782, Vitukin returned in an attempt to free his people from the claws of Francia. His return was due to Charles enacting the Lex Frisionum, a code of laws to govern the people of Frisia, a Germanic territory that is in the Netherlands but was close to Saxony. The Lex Frisionum was implemented to help the Frisian people better govern themselves as a territory within Charles's kingdom, but it came at the cost of harsh penalties towards Germanic pagans. Vitikin would win one major battle against Charles, the Battle of Suntel. This victory would unfortunately come at a major price. In a sadistic turn of events, as a retaliation for the Saxon victory, 
Charles gathered around 4,500 Saxon prisoners and rounded them up in the Saxon town of Verdun and then had them beheaded. Charles received harsh criticism for the massacre of Verdun, as he rightly should. I mean, jeez, that's a lot of people. But it didn't stop his desire to bring all of Saxony under his control. After all, Vidikund was still out there leading rebellions. Things would reach a conclusion, more or less, for the time being when Vidikund finally surrendered to Charles around the year 784. As part of his surrender, Vidikund allowed himself to be baptized. After that, he basically just disappears from all historical records. Based on Charles's past MO, I personally think he was probably sent to become a monk. Like I said, the wars between the Franks and the Saxon would last for quite a bit longer until 804, but with Vidikin's surrender, Charles was finally able to bring all of Saxony under his control. Charles would fight against several other groups of people throughout his time as king, further expanding his kingdom. He conquered Bavaria to his east, the Duchy of Benevento in southern Italy, modern-day Croatia, and the region of Brittany in northwest France, the only part of modern-day France he had yet to control. He would also fight against the Basques and Umayyad Caliphate in Spain, although we'll go more into detail with that in the next episode. By the early 790s, Charles had control over most of western and central mainland Europe. But how was he actually able to achieve all these victories? Let's talk about knights. Well, in Charlemagne's time, they wouldn't have been called knights. Back then, the word that would develop into the modern-day English knight was knight, and could mean both boy and servant. Over the centuries, until around 1100 CE, knight changed meanings from servant to military follower of a king. Back in the 8th century, what we know of as knights would have been referred to as miles, the Latin word for soldier. But ideas of soldiers in armor on horseback date back well to before Charlemagne. The Greeks had mounted soldiers called the hippes, and Romans had an entire social rank of equites, which is usually translated as knights, though literally means both horse and cavalry. But these knights were prone to being knocked off their horses due to instability. Therefore, an entire war could not be fought on horseback. That is, until a very important invention came to Western Europe via China and the nomadic people of Central Asia. Stirrups. Yep, now with greater stability, a soldier could fight an entire battle on horseback. So, if you ever think about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and classic knightly scenes of men on horseback jousting... Sorry, that's not something that existed until centuries later. But this revolution in warfare took the Franks by storm as Charles decided to bet it big on mounted soldiers. This proved to be a great success because it allowed Charles and the Franks to conquer most of Western Europe. However, relying on knights also had its drawbacks. Horses weren't actually great for large army versus army confrontations. Yeah, they allowed Charles to blow through cities and open areas, but horses weren't really practical for conquest in areas with heavy forestry, like Saxony. Knights were great in Italy and had allowed Charles to take over the region relatively quickly, but Saxon warfare in the woods of Germany was what caused the Saxon wars to go on for decades. 
Eventually, Charles would start giving land to the generals of his knights for victories in battle. One of Charles's successors, King Charles the Bald, would issue a decree that the land owned by these knight generals was a hereditary claim, giving knights a new level of prestige. This turned knights into a level of nobility. And a couple of centuries even further down the line would see these knightly nobles develop the laws of chivalry, thus completing the evolution into the modern-day idea of handsome noblemen with plate armor on horseback courting princesses. But back in Charles's day, knights were his main soldiers. They were a horror to behind, the likes of which had only been seen before in Europe by the armies of Attila the Hun raiding Rome. He had changed the laws of combat in medieval European warfare. But these weren't the only changes Charles made to his kingdom. The reign of Charles is referred to as the Carolingian Renaissance. It was a period in which the rights and power of royalty within Francia were stretched to the max in order to see how powerful one man could truly be while also completely revamping his nation, mostly for the better. Medieval rulers, particularly those of the former Merovingian dynasty, executed a type of power referred to as a ban, also called the banum or banality. Under the Merovingians, the ban referred to a lord's power to call upon citizens in a military sense. Under Charles, the banum of a king was expanded to include the right to judicial power as well as a sense of duty to defend the defenseless, i.e. widows, orphans, and yes, the church. And Charles would use this new sense of power to its full extent. Charlemagne's need to reform and organize his blossoming empire, because it basically was one at this point, just not officially, was due to two background factors. One, the separation of Western Europe from the Byzantine Eastern Europe, and two, Charlemagne's Christian background. After the Western Roman Empire collapsed, the Eastern half fully became its own entity. This, unfortunately for Western Europe, meant that things were disorganized. The Byzantines took advantage of this disorganization to take the city of Venice in Italy. Venice was, and would continue to be for many centuries, the trade hub of Europe. With Venice in Byzantine hands, the West lost access to easy trade routes with Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean. This mainly meant losing out on gold, the main source of currency. Charles and his buddy King Offa of Mercia, an English kingdom, sought to standardize the entire economy of Western Europe. They started using silver, which was much more abundant, and created the precursors to the modern-day pound sterling and penny. But moving on, we already know that Charles was very Christian. However, he was also very excited about the pursuit of knowledge. In this effort, Charles sought to increase literacy throughout every corner of his expansive kingdom, mainly so people could read the Bible. This was also before the printing press was invented, so books needed to be copied by hand, and this was mainly done by Christian monks in monasteries. Schools were created all across Western Europe so the citizens could read classics from ancient Rome and Greece. He also had the Bible translated into different languages. Now you could read it if you were a Frank, Lombard, Saxon, Burgundian, or Gallo-Roman. This was also kind of ironic seeing as Charlemagne himself was able to read but not actually write. And finally, Charles sought to standardize the pronunciation of Latin. 
For a while now, the Latin in books and the Latin a person spoke were very different. People in Spain pronounced things differently from people in Italy, who pronounced things differently from people in Francia, who pronounced things differently from Irish monks, who had never been conquered by Rome in the first place. Charles actually took the approach that the Irish monks did and sought to make a standardized pronunciation of Latin based on how words were actually written, not just how some random priest in rural Francia thought it should be spoken. That seems relatively straightforward, and why weren't they doing this already? I don't know. And these are just a few of the administrative reforms Charles implemented. He would still do many more, though that was after he was made Holy Roman Emperor. Still, even with just this notion of standardizing education and culture throughout all of Western Europe, it's no wonder he's known as Charlemagne. Charles the Great. We still have a long way to go with Charles' story. He is only just becoming the Charlemagne of historical and legendary renown. It's very important to know that Charles was just one king doing all of this. Yes, he had the backing of the Pope, but that was always because his goals just happened to align with those of the Vatican. But what would happen when the Vatican finally started thinking, Oh wait, what if people start thinking Charlemagne has more power than us? Well, we'll figure out what happens with that as we make our way towards the year 800 CE. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Okay, so next time you might think we're finally going to get to the story of Charles becoming the new Roman Emperor. But we're going to save that for two episodes from now. Next time, we're actually going to be covering one of the nobles who served under Charlemagne. A man whose brave actions would become legend and go on to inspire a whole slew of Renaissance-era poetry and stories. We're talking about Roland, a man also known as one of the paladins of Charlemagne. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.